the anti-vaccination movement, complementarianism, and the science of booze. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, a weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I've had several people comment that the last few episodes have been relatively light on science questions, and, well, I answer what people send in, but I'm so excited to let you know this week is just packed with science questions that relate to faith. So, uh, without further ado, let's get it started. Hey, Science Mike. Um, I'm currently looking into the difference between males and females in the Bible, and mostly regarding leadership and authority. I wondered if you could give some insight on the subject from a science perspective. Thanks. I am a stay-at-home dad, and the previous church that I was a part of, they were complementarian, and so I received a little bit of flack about my wife being the breadwinner and me as the man staying home to raise our kids. And so I was just curious what the science behind complementarianism and that way of thinking would be and as opposed to today's more accepted view of egalitarianism, feminism, slash the stay-at-home dad phenomena, all of that. Thank you. All right, men and women, feminism, complementarianism, all that good stuff. Uh, I get questions like that a lot, and uh, that's why I put two in a row there. Those two questions come from slightly different perspectives, but ultimately what we're talking about is how are men and women different scientifically, and what does that mean for how we structure societies and how we structure our marriages and lives and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, first, let's clarify a couple of terms for anyone who's not familiar. Uh, Complementarianism is a particular uh, view in theology, uh, typically associated with the Abrahamic monotheistic religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Chronologically, actually, it would be Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam. Um, But basically that men and women have different but complementary roles in life, in marriage, uh, leadership, all that kind of good stuff. So men and women are not the same uh, and that they have different roles to play in society. Of course, feminism is uh, merely a platform uh, that works towards women having equal rights and access as men in society. And egalitarianism would be sort of the opposing viewpoint from complementarianism, that men and women are equal and that their roles in society should not be prescribed based on their gender. So if we look at the science behind complementarianism, I don't really see very much science behind complementarianism. People who are proponents of complementarianism typically don't use science to advance their view. They use scripture. And so they interpret scripture in such a way to support that men and women should 
have different roles in life. Uh, so let's look at see where science weighs in on that topic. And believe it or not, science actually does support the idea that men and women have some different characteristics. Now, some of these are obvious. If you look at a man and you look at a woman, um, we are structured differently. Men tend to be larger. They tend to be more muscular. We obviously have different uh, secondary sex characteristics and primary sex characteristics. Um, I can certainly grow a nice full beard uh, rather easily, and uh, my wife is not gifted uh, with that same power, uh, unfortunately for her, because my beard really is glorious. But it goes beyond external differences, like men tend to be taller. Uh, we can actually look at uh, our brains and see some differences between men and women. Uh, first of all, uh, in our development, girls tend to get better at language first. Their uh, brains develop linguistic capacity faster than the average boy, while the average male brain, young boys, typically are better at math and geometry, although, of course, both of those differences level out over time. We're talking about a few years prepubescent and pubescent development. Okay. Uh, now, if we talk about adult differences, men's brains tend to be a bit larger. Women's brains tend to be a bit more intricate. Uh, men have more uh, gray matter. Women have more white matter. Those are different types of brain tissue. Uh, speaking from an oversimplified macro level, um, gray matter is more associated with, I guess, rigorous thought. White matter more uh, associated with uh, connective functions in the brain. But again, those are wild oversimplifications to the point they're almost meaningless. But uh, in terms of what we see in lasting sort of neurocognitive differences, uh, men do tend to be a bit better spatially, a little bit better at navigating three-dimensional space, while women tend to retain a lasting advantage with language and identifying uh, people's emotions. But here's the kicker. When I say men or women, we're talking about these averages over large population groups, right? We're not talking about any particular man or woman. And this is absolutely critical because the distribution curves of the traits I've just talked about overlap significantly between men and women, not to mention the fact that there are tremendous cultural factors at play during development that are influencing brain development. It is difficult for us to parse out what is nature and what is nurture in the way men and women's brains are structured. So look at me. Uh, I'm a male. I identify myself as relatively masculine, uh, but I have fantastic language skills and I'm very empathetic. It's easy for me to understand other people's feelings. And I'm an absolutely horrible navigator. And so you take some things that are associated with male brains and they don't apply to me as an individual. Uh, but it's not that I'm not male. It's not that I'm effeminate. It's that for those capacities, I'm on an overlap between male and female characteristics of brains. And the trouble with complementarianism is that it forces cultural and some biological average norms on individuals. It ignores the differences, the things about us that make us unique, the things in which God made us truly special. 
And that's why I think egalitarianism is good. It allows us to play to our strengths. In my home, if we were completely prescribed to traditional gender roles, uh, I couldn't probably be quite as nurturing with my kids. I probably couldn't be as natural a conversationalist. My wife would probably not be the ones, if the girls want to learn to throw a football, who they ask. <laughs> that would probably, you know, that doesn't fit within complementarian gender roles. Those are very egalitarian functions where we each find uh, the roles we fit best in in parenting and in life. Women make great leaders. Uh, I happen to work for a brilliant woman, and uh, she's a talented and capable leader. I'd put her leadership skills against any man. Uh, she's a brilliant person. I'm just surrounded in my life with strong, capable women who, frankly, would not be in the position they are in without the advances that feminism has provided. Uh, so you can certainly make a scriptural case for complementarianism. I also think you can make a scriptural case for egalitarianism. But at the end of the day, the way individuals function and deviate from group norms and the way that uh, group tendencies overlap, these distributions overlap in science, means that I think science makes a great case for egalitarian society. To say nothing of the data, the, the studies which have shown that egalitarian marriages actually tend to outperform complementarian marriages uh, in terms of uh, fidelity rates and uh, lower divorce rates. So even by those metrics, it's a win for egalitarianism. Uh, so for the first question, uh, yeah, men and women do have some biological differences, and the Bible certainly uh, speaks of men and women frequently in distinct roles, as was normal for the culture. Uh, but for our second question, the stay-at-home dad, which, by the way, that's awesome, man. I'm jealous. You shouldn't catch any flag for that. Uh, science backs you up, and I think you can read the Bible to back you up as well. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike. What are the scientific pros and cons for alcohol? As I've studied ancient cultures, I've noticed that things like beer and even grain alcohol were some of the first things that caused humans to start forming agricultural-based societies. In places like Egypt, workers were even compensated in barrels of beer. Uh, that sounds awesome. Clearly, alcohol has been around almost as much as culture has been around. And much of it is also connected to health benefits of some sort or another. Beer seems like a superfood of sorts. My wife's doctor told her to have a beer every day to help her milk supply come in when our son was born. So my question, what does alcohol do to our bodies and our brains? Is there a healthy way to consume it regularly? Do different types of alcohol have different pros and cons? Should I have a drink or two at lunch to be more creative? Well, let's talk about booze. You know, booze is uh, fun. <laughs> I'm a fan. In my own life, I didn't start out as an alcohol drinker. I was a dry Baptist for the first three decades of my life. That was good for me. Uh, you know, abstaining from alcohol was... Uh, probably the right call. I got really, really, really drunk uh, when I was 21 and um, and got really sick. And with a history of alcoholism in my family, I thought it was best for me to avoid it uh, later in life. 
a friend of mine said, you know, you can drink just one beer, right? You don't have to binge drink. <laughs> and a couple of years later, I, I did just that. I went to Savannah with some friends and had a couple of beers and it was a lot of fun and I didn't get sick. And I realized that uh, some of the ways we approach alcohol in America aren't healthy. Now, let's start with uh, the milk letdown and uh, lactation and beer. Um, it's not actually the alcohol that probably does that. It's some of the other ingredients in beer that is uh, giving that that effect. So we can't really link alcohol to that. And we also want to be clear that I'm not a doctor, but based on everything I've seen, it's best if you're going to do that to drink immediately after breastfeeding and not immediately before to limit the amount of alcohol that gets into the breast milk. So now a bunch of people who aren't breastfeeding are rolling their eyes. Sorry about that. Um, so thinking in terms of your brain and um, alcohol, a lot of alcohol is 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 not great. It, it's going to affect your executive function, your judgment, your reflexes. You've heard all this a million times. Lots of alcohol can be can be dangerous in the short term. Okay, make bad decisions. Don't drink and drive at all. Let me be really clear. In my opinion, one beer plus a car is a bad. A bad scene. If you're gonna if you're gonna drink, have travel arrangements, um, because based on the studies I've seen, it does not take very much alcohol at all to affect your judgment making capacity and your reflexes, both of which are critical when you, a primate, are going to operate some metal uh, hurtling across uh, asphalt at dozens of miles an hour. There's tremendous physics involved, lots of force. And you can just ruin someone's life or, or, or kill someone on accident. Okay. So, um, but as you alluded to, just a, a buzz can make conversation fun. It can lower anxiety. Uh, it, it can be a social facilitator. And, and that's fine. Now, there are health benefits associated with drinking alcohol. For example, very moderate amounts of alcohol consumption can uh, raise levels of the good cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, in your bloodstream. Uh, it's actually in one study been uh, linked to an improvement in your libido. It can even lower your risk of gallstones if you have just two servings of alcohol per day, lower the chance of diabetes or dementia. That's really cool. Those are all positive effects associated with one or two servings of alcohol per day typically in conjunction with a meal. In other words, (laughs) not enough that you're actually going to feel most of the effects of alcohol when taken for recreational use. The positive effects of alcohol are associated with very moderate use. And when your usage of alcohol goes beyond that, it, it gets bad quickly. You lose that cardiovascular benefit and that HDL benefit, and you actually move into uh, increased chances of cardiovascular disease because of changes in the way that your uh, body makes platelets. They become more likely to uh, clot together, which can lead to heart attack and stroke. Uh, You can increase your risk of certain types of cancer in the throat and the voice box, uh, the liver, the esophagus. Uh, even even the breast and, and, and colorectal area. And that's associated with high levels of alcohol consumption or frequent alcohol use. Obviously, there's the liver effects. And remember, I just said that 
Um, small amounts of alcohol can be therapeutic in preventing dementia. Well, guess what? Larger amounts increase your chance of dementia. It also increases your uh, risk of depression. Uh, lots of alcohol usage is associated with gout and high blood pressure, even nerve damage or pancreatitis. So a little bit of alcohol is a good thing. A little bit of alcohol is fun. A lot of alcohol is d- damaging to your health, damaging to your relationships, and extraordinarily dangerous when you carry out everyday tasks. Uh, what we're seeing here is that moderation is essential with alcohol. If you have any uh, risk of alcoholism, if you have trouble controlling your alcohol consumption, then no alcohol is the best approach. Um, now, Everything in moderation, including moderation, I don't think there's anything wrong with occasionally, uh, you know, celebrating with friends in a safe, controlled environment and and drinking more alcohol. You know, one of my favorite things to do is uh, have friends over to the house uh, where nobody has to drive and have a few beers and uh, laugh and have a good time. There's, you know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's probably not tremendous long-term health consequences from that. But moderation is essential. And if you can't moderate your consumption of alcohol, you shouldn't consume alcohol. Uh, Science says so. Hi, Mike. This is Jessica from Yukon, Oklahoma. I know that the science is really strong behind getting your kids vaccinated and for staying up to date with them with booster shots as an adult. But I have a lot of friends who don't vaccinate their children and they back up their decision uh, by saying that God doesn't want them to vaccinate their children. I've read blog posts and had conversations, things like that, where they tie it back to their faith on why they don't protect their children from diseases with vaccines. I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. To me, it is a Christian issue to vaccinate your children because it's helping to protect people around you who can't protect themselves. Thanks, Mike. I enjoy your show. Have a great day. One of the things that made me uh, originally decide I wasn't a person of faith anymore was the way that reasonable people can look at spiritual issues and look at Scripture and come to differing conclusions that are both pretty easy to defend. Uh, And I think, frankly, vaccination versus anti-vaccination is one of those. I think you can make a compelling case in Scripture that the right and moral thing to do is to vaccinate people, and especially children, against disease. Uh, But I think you can also make somewhat of a case in Scripture against vaccination. And I think those are a misread of Scripture. Um, but the people on the other side think that my view is a misread of Scripture. And I have to be clear starting out before I get into the science, which obviously is much less ambiguous. <laughs> I'm sympathetic. This is a tough case because we're pitting individual religious liberty on one hand versus public health on the other. Both of those are important, vital functions in a free society. Uh, It is important that people are able to believe what they choose and practice their faith in the way that they choose. 
But this is a case where that faith practice uh, has public health consequences. And I've got to sympathize with people I disagree with here because when they make the point that religious liberty is important, I actually agree with them. But I am all in on vaccinations. All in. The science is a slam dunk. And the arguments against vaccination are pseudoscience at best and widely discredited. I mean, you're talking about uh, a TV star and uh, a scientist who has been completely, completely discredited in the UK. But even if some of these arguments in science were valid, like a supposed link to autism, vaccinations would still be best because you're taking the remote possibility of uh, some health disorder versus the very high probability of a dangerous uh, or deadly disease. Um, the diseases we vaccinate against, polio, measles, whooping cough, these are these are not casual diseases. These claimed lots of human life. Um, before we had vaccines, they still claim lots of human life in the developing world where we have trouble distributing vaccines. But I thought it might be interesting. I did some Googling. Honestly, I wasn't really familiar with the religious arguments against vaccination. So I spent more than my two minutes. I usually give myself researching this question. And honestly, I could probably come up with better counter arguments if I spent more than, I don't know, 10 minutes and a few minutes ruminating at the dinner table thinking about this. But uh, let's look at a couple of religious arguments against vaccination. One I saw was that God's design is perfect. We don't need to add to our bodies or our immune systems because God has already, in Genesis 1, created us exactly as we were made to be. That's a one point you could take from Scripture. But I would ask someone who takes that point, do you take aspirin because God made your body perfect? But you know, if you've got a headache, you take aspirin. If you've got... A sore shoulder, I bet you take Advil. I call them adult M&Ms because grown-ups pop them so much. But so, suppose you even don't do that. You don't even take over-the-counter medications. Do you wear shoes because God designed your perfect feet? Do you drive a car because you can walk the same distance and God didn't make cars? Uh, do you use the Internet because you could speak to a person directly as you were designed in Genesis 1? This argument just doesn't hold weight for me. Another argument is that the body is the temple of God uh, and that we, you know, we shouldn't um, inject things into it. But, you know, vaccines protect the temple of God, <laughs> just like, uh, you know, any other precaution you take for your safety, like a seatbelt uh, protects the temple of God. So I don't I don't think that's a great argument. You know, I saw, you know, that we shouldn't submit ourselves to government authorities that don't submit themselves to scripture, which is not exactly how the Bible read because, um, you know, Paul and Christ both exhorted Christians to submit themselves to governments that were not Christian, uh, but simply to uh, resist those things that weren't scriptural, not to completely reject the government. Uh, and of course, there's the claims that vaccines cause cancer, autism, all that stuff. No, 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 no. Vaccines are not perfect. So they're are allergic reactions in some cases, but those minor side effects and those rare side effects are still much better than the diseases that the vaccine protects you from, okay? And what we're talking about here is herd immunity. And so when you choose not to vaccinate your children or vaccinate yourself because of religious liberty, even if you're saying you're not submitting because it's unscriptural, 
you are putting at risk people who actually can't get vaccinated. People with certain types of cancer, people who are immunocompromised because of disease, including children. Now, there was one other argument I saw, and that was that vaccines are made with human tissue that's been harvested from aborted fetuses. And, uh, well, that's not misinformation. Vaccines are tested and in some cases cultured because they have to be cultured in human tissue with these uh, cell strains that we've been using for decades that were originally from discarded fetuses. A couple thoughts on that. One, human tissue is not a human, right? When we do a heart transplant, we aren't merging human beings. We are taking heart tissue from a donor and then giving that tissue to another person. These fetuses were not aborted for the purpose of being turned into vaccine machines. That's not where those cells came from. Now, uh, there's a whole sidebar here where we could go into abortion and when life begins. And the Ask Science Mike email box is already full of those questions, so I'm going to save that tirade for another day. Uh, I'm not even going to tip my hat on where I stand on that for now. But basically, that was the only argument I could see kind of holding some weight. Uh, If you're pro-life and you believe that abortion is murder, then there is some weak... A causal link where the vaccine is not possible without the, the the aborted fetus, or at least not as effective. Still, uh, on the organ transplant idea, my kids get vaccines. I get vaccines uh, because, as alluded to in the question, the thing that is best, the thing that protects the most people, the thing that reduces suffering the most... Uh, the way that we love our neighbor is to get vaccinated. That's where I stand. Um, I'm empathetic of the religious liberty thing. I really am. But because of that stance, real harm is happening in the world. We have flares of diseases in the United States that were just about on their way out. We've got whooping cough back. We've got measles back. Uh, It's crazy, this stuff doesn't belong in our schools. It doesn't belong in our society. It should be going the way of polio when you vaccinate your children. And most, again, most of the anti-vaccination stuff, it's unscientific. I mean, if you just Google this, there's, it's hard to find a coherent argument for the anti-vax movement that doesn't look like it's from uh, a GeoCities page in the 1990s on the web. Uh, Just really unsubstantiated claims I just don't put a lot of stock in the whole movement. I really don't. Other than I get the argument for religious liberty. Uh, Still, for the love of God and the safety of our children, vaccinate. Our last question also came in from the email inbox. Boy, that's a popular way to (laughs) drop questions to Ask Science Mike. It reads, G'day, Science Mike. And it actually does. It reads good day. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, that's not flourish from me. That's the actual question. Anyway, uh, English mentalist, illusionist, and atheist Darren Brown uses suggestion and psychological manipulation to perform tricks that appear psychic or spiritual. In one episode, he uses such techniques to convert a room full of atheists into believing in or being open to the idea of God 
and then later deconverting them. And there's a link to a YouTube uh, clip, which I'll have in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. As an atheist, he never actually called upon the power of God, yet many people in the room felt as though the presence of God was there, including one guy who fell over as if being slain by the Spirit. Some churches are full of people who report being touched by the Holy Spirit or the presence of God. How much of this is likely due to their mind, with the appropriate atmosphere being set by the worship team? Could the right setting make a person more susceptible to psychologically fabricating such an experience, speaking in tongues and being slain by the Spirit? How can we trust that we are having genuine spiritual experiences and not merely making it up to make ourselves feel more connected to God? Any insight on this topic would be greatly appreciated. Man, fantastic question. <laughs> uh, as soon as this one came in, I got excited because I, I was so looking forward to answering it, uh, even even if my answer ends up not being that satisfying. <laughs> so, a couple of ideas here. Uh, how much of this is likely due to their mind with the appropriate atmosphere being set by the worship team? Um Yeah, you can manipulate people. We're a a highly, highly suggestible species. We are social primates. Fitting in with others, uh, sharing their experiences, sharing their values, sharing their beliefs has been a recipe for reproductive success for human beings as long as we have been human beings. Belonging matters to us a lot. And therefore, our psychodynamic systems are oriented around group cohesion. Ooh, already that's kind of a, a case against God, I guess, isn't it? Hmm, let's see where we go from there. Uh, could the right setting make a person more susceptible to psychologically fabricating such an experience like speaking in tongues, etc.? Absolutely, the right setting uh, can make people more susceptible to fabricating such an experience. Here's the crux. How can we trust that we're having genuine spiritual experiences. Someone could lie to you and convince you that they're your friend. They could convince you that they like you and that they are trustworthy. And in doing so, they would be manipulating your brain's systems for evaluating foes and emotions. They would be acting. And uh, you may fall for it. But just because you fell for it doesn't mean friendship doesn't exist. Just because one person is manipulative doesn't mean all people are manipulative. Here's the deal. I am convinced there are charlatans and con men in all varieties of religion, all denominations. Everybody has their share of people who are doing it for power or money or influence. They are out there. Other people, uh, and I've, I've actually seen uh, Darren Brown's work before, as well as other mentalists and illusionists who um, simulate religious phenomenon without being religious. Uh, that is a primarily educational enterprise, although uh, in Darren Brown's case, he doesn't disclose a lot of his methods, so there's a lot of showmanship involved. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but he, he's certainly not an academic 
uh, presenting us with the the entire case of how his, his operation works. But uh, just because we can be manipulated into having manufactured spiritual experiences doesn't mean spiritual experiences are invalid. We can be manipulated into experiencing love. We can be manipulated uh, into seeing things that aren't there through optical illusions. Our senses are fallible. We can be tricked. Okay? So that doesn't prove or disprove the existence of God at all, nor does it prove or disprove the validity of spiritual experiences. The fact is, science tells us and shows us quite well that spiritual experiences and religious experiences can be healthy and beneficial for both individuals and for cultures, period. They can be used for bad as well, in the same way that your emotions can be used to manipulate you. So how do we know and how do we trust that we're having genuine spiritual experiences? On some level, you don't. But on another level, um, when you're with a community over time, uh, when you're open to your own limitations, your own fears, your own hopes, um, when you do the work to know yourself and you do the work uh, of showing up in prayer with God every day, um, over time, uh, those experiences become more deepened more genuine, and frankly, it becomes easier to resist momentary sensationalism. Um, You know, I had a a pretty dramatic experience in my own life on the beach. I'm sure every listener of the podcast has heard about that, but that's not the bulk of my spiritual life. That was a turning point. That was a moment. But the way I know that was a genuine experience is the lasting effect it's had in my life. It wasn't just a momentary thing, and it's not a thing that I'm primarily concerned about sharing with others. The The most powerful spiritual experiences are the ones that change us, are the ones that shape us in a lasting way. Uh, so the, the impact it has on how you live your life and how you view the world is probably the greatest litmus test of all over how genuine a spiritual experience is. Uh, And obviously for those of us whose spirituality exists within a Christian context, uh, there are other ways for helping uh, discern uh, which experiences are genuine and which ones aren't. Um, You know, the degree to which it points toward Christ and not ourselves, the degree to which it affirms the resurrection, that's important in the Christian tradition. Um, you know, the epistles speak a lot about that. Paul would be happy to tell you more. But yeah, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have to admit, because in the weird place I am in my spiritual life, the first time I saw Darren Brown, I actually got excited. I thought it was really cool. And I think that when you are comfortable in your faith, when you and God are walking together, even though you may not understand God, you may be leaning into a lot of mystery. These sorts of things become more fascinating than scary. There's just nothing to fear about God in these kinds of inquiries and challenges and puzzles. Um, Because God, like I've said many times, God's not a puzzle. He's not an interesting jigsaw puzzle. Uh, But God is an amazing companion and leader uh, through the journey of life. Another week, another episode of Ask Science Mike. Uh, You know, I've been talking about 
uh, how long the show could be. I get so many questions that we don't get to cover on the show. Every week we have a few more questions than we have uh, slots to answer. And so we're just slowly building this stockpile of questions. I'm worried we'll never get answered. So I asked you guys if you thought this was a good length for the show, or if the show should be longer. Uh, originally, an overwhelming crush of people said, make the show longer. And then uh, a second wave came that said, don't make the show longer. And uh, uh, they're about even. It's almost 50-50. Uh, now, so even though this episode was longer than normal, and I guess I'll do that when the answers require it, I think I'm going to try to stick to that 30 to 35 minute format for the show. Frankly, it's more sustainable for me. I'm trying not to bite off more than I can chew and, and make sure this is a program I can do for a long time. Uh, now, I've got some pretty exciting announcements coming up in the future that may uh, shift uh, the amount of time I have to devote to this kind of work. Well, just keep your ears open. Good news coming. Uh, thanks for helping me create open and safe conversations about science, faith, and life. Last week's episode, uh, Science Mike After Dark, uh, I was really, really amazed by how people responded to both the discussions of polyamory and pedophilia. You guys are a really reasonable a bunch <laughs> are simply not prone to the same sort of inflammatory freakout that the rest of the internet seems to be. And I want to thank you for that. It's really encouraging to me. Uh, now, uh, even though we have lots of great questions, uh, if you stop sending them in, we will run out eventually. So keep sending in questions. Keep them coming. You can use hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, but almost no one does. Most people go to AskScienceMike.com and record a voice question or send in a typed question there. Uh, Typed questions are a great way to give me questions you want to keep anonymous. Of course, AskScienceMike is listener-supported. You can help me keep these conversations going. Every single dollar can help. Uh, Just go to AskScienceMike.com to figure out how you can donate. And Remember, you can change or cancel a pledge at any time if money is tight. And the iTunes ratings, guys, holy cow, they keep coming in. They are not only encouraging to me, but they help other people find the show. So everyone who's rated me on iTunes, giving me a star rating, great. For those of you who actually wrote a review, that's amazing. Even more than downloads, those ratings make the program jump up in the rankings and help people who need this program find it. Uh, So that's one thing you could do that costs nothing that would really help. And of course, Ask Science Mike is still free. And uh, that won't change. The show is produced by Greg Nordine. Uh, his work is cut out for him this week. I've rambled a lot, so hopefully it's uh, it's tighter when you hear it. And uh, our theme song is by Jeb Bodiford. If you've got a podcast and you want original music composed, including uh, turnarounds and tags and all the little effects you hear on this program, Jeb can help you out. Links to both Greg and Jeb can be found in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com along with resources for every single question asked on the program. Uh, Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.